Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have Humphrey Bacchus, co-founder of a company called In Vivo Diagnostics. Uh, They provide uh, diagnostic testing services that analyze the microbiome, host immune status, and uh, genomic data. And we're going to be talking about uh, the work that he does there and the other work as well. So, Humphrey, thanks for coming. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So what caused you to go into the field uh, that looks at microbiome and these kind of issues? Like, is there a personal interest in your trying different areas in science? It's it's uh it's kind of a bit of a long-winded approach actually uh, for me. So I have an unusual background. Uh, you know, my original undergraduate degree was in was in uh, philosophy and linguistics, and then I um, I actually ended up doing a, a secondary degree in physical therapy. And when I was working in kind of physical rehab and, and neuro uh, rehabilitation, I quickly re- quickly realized that um, there were kind of patterns happening within within patients that I that I couldn't you know work with on a purely physical level. So I embarked on a a post grad um, master's program in in clinical nutrition, um, and that's where I started to get really interested in the microbiome. Um, you know, I was in clinical practice for a decade or so, and when I joined in, in when I joined in vivo, um, you know, we were a small, pretty, pretty small startup company just starting to work in, in, in the microbiome field, um, you know, a decade ago, um, really taking other people's microbiome tests uh, from around the world, kind of in the early days, I guess, really is of, of kind of PCR and uh, kind of commercialization of that in, in, in the microbiome space and kind of t- and taking that forward. And it's really been uh, a decade of of learning and talking and translational science for me always being a clinician i've always been interested in that kind of translational role really from yeah from the science into you know how what, what we can tease out of it and how we can apply it in clinical practice um you right. know i think that, that that's always been the core of kind of what's interested me and and outside of that the i guess the wider aspects of kind of thinking about the microbiome inter- internally and the health of the microbiome is kind of you know, a direct, direct reflection of kind of how we look after the external environment as well. You know, the microbes are one and part of us. And, and for me, there's, a, you know, a lot of interest in the kind of the, the wider ecosystems uh, and how we support ourselves. And, you know, when you look globally at the moment, the challenges in, you know, in the soil or you know, challenges in kind of weather systems, you know, you can kind of like almost draw a direct correlation to the challenges that we have within our microbial ecosystems internally and and that certainly kind of led me and me and my team to kind of dive really deep into microbiome science so what's the focus of uh, in vivo's work right now so if we were to kind of like sum it up in a uh i saw as a kind of like a in a mission statement our, our mission is restoring you know human health and ecology um at, at in vivo you know we you know, we see the work that we do is indivisible from, you know, the impact that it has on the, uh, the wider community, the wider ecological community. If we, if we nurture and nourish our own internal, you know, human ecosystems through understanding the role that these microbes have to play in, in 
post-immunity in health and disease, in pathogenesis of disease. And if we can kind of like, you know, nurture these microbes uh, rather than kind of like, you know, treating them as in kind of uh, as invaders the whole time, uh, then we have also have an opportunity to to look after, you know, the, the wider environment in which we live. So our focus is really around, you know, trying to help patients, you know, you know, they're the end users of our services to through their clinicians to understand more about the relationships that their bodies have with these microbes in uh, specifically in the development of disease. So again, specifically, are there any conditions that you're targeting or is it, uh, you know, more of a prebiotic, probiotic type thing or what? Yeah. Like, what do, so what be commercial applications. Of course. So at the laboratory in Bristol, uh, which we have a, we have a division of the company. So Vivo Healthcare is the kind of the, you know, the holding company. Uh, it's kind of, the, you know, the clinical commercial arm. We do all the education, the training with the clinicians, uh, you know, we have about four, four and a half thousand clinicians, uh, mainly throughout Europe, use our services. So we kind of provide the laboratory diagnostics, but the lab itself is a, is a division. It's a separately run company, independent uh, scientific advisory board, uh, management structure, which is, which is based out of Bristol. And we focus on three microbiomes currently at the moment. So the vaginal microbiome, uh, the oral microbiome, uh, which I know that you've chatted to one of my colleagues about, and the gastrointestinal microbiome. And I think you know, we're inspired really. I mean, there's been so much focus on, on the gastrointestinal microbiome and the impact on health and disease, but very little commercial work has been done in uh, the application of these other microbiomes that have a huge role to play in, in health and disease. I mean, if you take, you know, the world of the vaginal microbiome uh, and its kind of niche ecosystem, even for us, you know, in the panels that, we, you know, we've developed, you know, even helping clinicians, you know, with patients that have got long-standing recurrent, uh, you know, infections or what appear to be, for example, candidiasis, and they have retreat, uh, repeat treatments. You know, for us, it's the it's the ability to to look at the microbes and the and the pattern and the context, and to be able to help clinicians realize that actually it's not a picture of candidiasis, it's a picture of bacterial vaginosis, or um, to see the proliferation of specific lactobacilli species uh, and realize. Um, that it's cytolytic uh, vaginosis. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a tool really to, the, the tools to kind of differentiate and help clinicians guide. I don't, I wonder whether the microbiome will ever be a diagnostic tool in itself because it doesn't, you know, exist separately from us. You know, this kind of bi-directional pull, you know, the microbes driving the disease or the disease driving the microbes. It's difficult to kind of tease it out exactly. And, and I, I guess from my perspective, the more we, dive deeper into the science sometimes I feel like you know feel like I know less <laughs> in some ways today than I knew yesterday in terms of the complexities that's just around the vaginal microbiome and then if we dive into the oral microbiome oh. it's, yeah go ahead a quick question here are you looking for the absence or the prevalence of species are you looking at the metabolomic profile or I mean from speaking to people there's many different ways to look at it and it sounds like just looking at what species are there or not isn't very helpful because of the redundancy of, of, of a species to be able to do what needs to be done in a given niche. Yeah, of course. I think one of the things that we always do, um, so for example, you know, some of the kind of uh, metabolomics and uh, is obviously, you know, kind of a lot of work being done on kind of, you know, the host and that's quite strong when you look at the kind of the bacterial aspects, kind of it's emerging science. You know, for us, you know, all the work that we do, we measure host markers uh, and that this, this host microbiome response is just really, really important. So, for example, you can't take, and I completely agree with what you're saying, you know, it's, it's very difficult to isolate 
um, specific strains of bacteria and die, you know, and immediately like tie them to, you know, tie them to a disease state, for example, you need to kind of pull together multiple pieces of information. So from us as a lab, we're very interested in this kind of host immune response. Um, so for example, if you take the vaginal microbiome, you know, so we measure the pH, uh, which is a, you know, really like core indicator of, uh, kind of a lactobacilli, uh, rich environment, um, which is really key for vaginal health. We measure the pH, then we look at interleukin one beta. So it's an inflammatory cytokine, which is really key. So that kind of gives us some kind of, these are kind of host markers that are independent of what's happening in the kind of the microbiome. Then we're looking at kind of key, uh, keystone species, lactobacilli rich. And then we obviously start looking at like, you know, pathogens or kind of pathobionts. And it's, it's not the presence of these microbes by themselves, which indicate a pattern. It's, Again, you know, it's uh, what, what is the host immune system doing? So, for example, in the, in the gastrointestinal microbiome, you might want to be looking at, you know, a marker, marker of innate immunity like beta defense in two, for example, secretory IgA, uh, you know, two primary uh, immune, uh, innate immune responses, which are going to indicate, you know, to the clinician, basically, how is this host, how is this, you know, kind of uh, individual responding to the presence of certain microbial patterns. And I think this is really, really key. You know, that this is the kind of the main thing, you know, the microbes don't you know, exist in themselves like cause disease. We always need to be coming back to like the host markers. And I think for us right now, that's where we're spending most time kind of focusing is, um, is really trying to get clinicians to understand about, you know, context and pattern. It's really, really important. You know, the, the idea of just being able to kind of like, um, you know, you know, target specific microbes, as you said, and just like, you know, say this causes disease or this causes, you know, health is, is very challenging. Well, I remember years ago, I did, uh, you know, my gut bacteria sample with uh, U, U biome and mm. I got back a list of a bunch of species and zero information. I was like, okay, mm. well, that tells me nothing. Yeah. And then yeah. I've done them more recently and it's, it's a little bit better, but not too much better. You know, that, oh, this may be indicated in this or that, but uh, I think it seems one like- of the the people, yeah, it seems like people would need to sample themselves multiple times over, let's say, a year and get a baseline for themselves, not only in terms of species prevalence, but, you know, what's there when they're in a healthy state. And then when something happens, they get sick, they'd have a reference at least for themselves on what to do, what was normal for them. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there's a kind of there's a longitudinal mapping and there's not many studies out there that have been done. You know, that's something that we've got our eye on in terms of you know, frequent sampling over long periods of time of, of individuals, uh, you know, certainly mapping disease progression, that's going to be incredibly important as well, you know, taking kind of, you know, even if you say, you know, take a take a patient with a familial history of colorectal cancer, for example, you know, and then, you know, literally almost like mapping them every three months over a 20, 30, 40 year period, you know, it's going to be really interesting to kind of see shifts and changes. But you only have to look at the influence of diet, you know, whether or not you're choosing a, a ketogenic diet, a Mediterranean diet, high carbohydrate diet, FODMAP diet to see kind of quite profound changes to microbial diversity. Uh, so that's obviously one thing that's you know, pretty difficult to control for. Um, and some of these diets might be wanted to be used to control, have specific outcomes, uh, which is important. But I think if we go even further back into the, the science and the technology, I think that a lot of the reason why we see even such massive variations between data that's being produced in a kind of next-gen sequencing or in genomic sequencing, which is not what we do. We're doing a kind of like a targeted kind of RT-QPCR approach um, to kind of like more limited data sets in combination with 
are host biomarkers. Um, so that that's kind of our approach basically is that, you know, when you're doing the kind of the NGS work is a lot of it's down to, of course, you've got to look at sample prep, you know, extraction, temperature, storage, you know, making sure that those are all consistent, you know, between like different people that are testing. And then you, then you might use, you know, different, uh, different platforms to so pack bio or Illumina. And then you might use the same, you know, you know, different libraries or the same libraries, but then, then the work is down to the pipeline is the bioinformatics. What do you exclude? What do you not exclude? You know, how do you basically work out what's noise, what's not? And so you see widely varying data sets coming out. And then the challenge is, well, what, what do you, what do you do with it? You know, you know, as you've just said, I mean, it's, it's a big challenge and that's, you know, and I think that it does require, you know, you know, clinicians to, to really be, uh, well-versed, well-read, well-supported to, to start kind of teasing out important information based on clinical history, based on clinical you know, data of the patients in front of them uh, to be able to actually make something of the data. Otherwise, it is just, it's a, it's a, it's a data dump uh, and, it, and it, it is really, really challenging. And I, I sometimes worry about the, um, the forums that I sometimes see of, I guess, ill sometimes desperate patients basically being able to kind of do you know do some testing and then they they say oh what do i do i've got really high levels of citrobacteriferindii or or pseudomonas aeruginosa or and then they basically you know searching through the internet uh searching pubmed find a single murine study on you know specific botanical to kind of decrease uh, you know this and then kind of assume if they just do that repeatedly they're basically somehow you know their health is going to get better uh, and it's a kind of reductionist model, you know, that that uh, that kind of like without kind of understanding a dynamic complexity that I suppose worries me most in the kind of the of this science kind of being in the public domain. Well, I mean, what <laughs> what would you imagine are the important factors to look at within someone's microbiome? Let's say, you know, vaginally or in their intestines. I mean, well, as I said, I think one way I think with, about it, like. Like, I don't know if this is wrong. I, in one way, I think it's like a job center for microbes. You know, in my <laughs> gut, there's jobs to be done. There's things to be produced and consumed and et cetera. So the microbes yeah. that show up there, like other microbes can do their job too, or that particular job. That's why there's redundancy. But I mean, like, how do you look at it? What's helpful for you to give a clearer picture of what's actually going on? Uh, I think we always start with the host markers. You know, so whenever we report, that's that's really important for us. So the first thing you see is kind of like, how is that? You know, let's let's not focus immediately on the microbes. Let's focus on the kind of the host response. So if you look at the vaginal microbiome test with us, first marker, pH, basically, you know, simple, you know, basically, you know, it's, it's saying, you know, kind of how acidic the environment is. We know that's kind of one of the kind of key predictors. Patient history, of course, you can't look at a result without hearing someone's history and how they're presenting you know, it's complete, you know, it is, it's, it's a unique, you know, pattern you've got, you've got, you know, that's the end of the day, you know, patient is not a test result, you know, an individual is not a test result. It's always context and pattern dependent. Then we look at things like immune, you know, like inflammation markers. Uh, so on the vaginal microbiome panel, we look at interleukin-1 beta, um, you know, then on the GI, as I said, we look at host innate immune markers. So, you know, are there any elevations of calprotectin? Uh, you know, you know, digestive function, digestive enzymes, uh, pancreatic elastase, that kind of almost gives you the kind of the soup in which the bacteria are swimming, you know, kind of what, how is that, you know, what is the kind of the foundational kind of health of the host in terms of gastrointestinal function, inflammation, 
innate immune system um, because that's what the microbes are communicating with. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're constantly, there's this kind of uh, host immune gut interface. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of, that's from our perspective, you know, the role of, uh, you know, the kind of keystone species or the commensal bacteria, you know, kind of short chain fatty acid producers or those that regulate, you know, immune function or digesting certain kind of starches and fibers. So you kind of start top level and you work your way down rather than kind of working from pathogens up, you know, and I think that's, that's, you know, kind of, um, that's kind of how we see the data, you know, start, you know, you know, start with the kind of foundational, foundational aspects, look at the host work your way down, basically look at, you know, the kind of foundational species. So in the vagina microbiome, you're looking at, you know, specifically four predominant lactobacilli species, uh, the different kind of community state types, uh, which is still a kind of like a, a working theory, uh, but looking at the kind of the dominance of certain species, um, for example, but you can't, but you have to understand the pattern, for example. So in cytolytic vaginosis, for example, yes, dominance of lactobacilli is really, really good, but too much is bad. And so there's this, it is, it's a, you know, it's a balance, you know, you talk about like jobs to be done, but then too many jobs can be done. <laughs> so, you know, things, things can swing the other way. What about the um, saying that something's a pathogen, you know, like in mm. C. difficile, like in the gut, it seems to always be present, at least in small amounts, but yeah. when it becomes predominant, now it's a pathogen. But is anything a pathogen? Are there things that are just always there, just in low predominance? And oh, when man, the balance gets out and they rise, then they, now they're suddenly a pathogen? I think it's very difficult to sit, you know, and, uh, you know, I come back to, as I said, I'm, you know, you know, I come from a practicing clinician background, you know, and, and, you know, not from a kind of allopathic medical background, you know, uh, working kind of more kind of physical medicine realm. But when I look at, you know, I speak to all our, you know, scientific advisory board and our lab director and, you know, our medical team. And, and yeah, I think, you know, in most cases, pathogenicity is a contextual state. So, you know, what makes one microbe doesn't always make one, you know, the same, you know, like if you take one microbe or the presence of C. diff toxins, for example, again, you've got to go back and look at how the host is responding. If you see, for example, you know, elevations of, you know, cancer marker CA125, for example, or something like that, you know, I, you know, you're immediately saying that someone's got cancer. No, you, you have to investigate, you have to kind of see it, for example. So I think it's, you know, there's, um, we're diving an awful lot deeper into realizing that, as you said, like just the presence of something. I think that's where we have to be very careful with the way that we report on microbes, particularly in the public domain, because I think kind of people can then worry without having the contextual state or, uh, you know, the, the horrors of Google uh, <laughs> uh, of just being, you know, like any, you know, you, you know, people type in basically, you know, any microbe that they find kind of elevated without understanding the contextual state. And I guess that's for us again, you know, where you start looking at, if you just start looking at microbiome data on its own, out of the context of both presentation and some other kind of confirmatory host markers, like immune response, like inflammation, um, then it doesn't put, doesn't put context to what's happening with the microbes. So I kind of agree with, you know, or, you know, sort of concur with your kind of question. I think it's, it's a challenge, you know. There are some microbes, you know, some pathogens, for example, in most cases, in most individuals, there will be pathogenicity, but not in everyone. You know, that, that's, a, that's a challenge at the end of the day. You know, and that's why, you know, just doing kind of blanket screens and saying, OK, right, well, we can see this microbe, you know, I don't know, let's say you see small amounts of Fusobacterium nucleatum, for example. And then you go, OK, right, well, you know, there's some research that says, you know, the presence of that in the gut basically is, you know, strongly correlated to development of colorectal cancer. 
that patient has colorectal cancer. We 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 just can't we just can't do that. Have you seen um, interactions of you know, or let's say our gut bacteria or any of our bacteria with our our host cells, like uh, bacteria to cell direct somehow contact, or uh, or is it just that you know our cells will will release things uh, externally and then the bacteria will pick them up and vice versa? Like how intimate do you know is the contact between the, our constituent bacteria and our cells? I mean, there's, there's a myriad of different ways in terms of like, you know, bacteria communicating with ourselves uh, and our immune system. And it's, a, it's, it's constantly communicating. Um, I mean, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, one of our scientific advisory board and, uh, you know, we were, we were chatting not so long ago and, and uh, someone called Dr. Javier Chora Reperez from uh, uh, Eastern Washington State University and, and um, he was saying, if I was to sum up my last 15 years in microbiome research, it would be interleukin 10. You know, so, you know, that's what, you know, it's a, um, signaling, you know, interleukin, uh, you know, host immune response marker. And, you know, it was interesting, you know, for me to hear because, again, it's this kind of host immune interaction, you know, signaling. And it's bidirectional. So, you know, our cells are communicating back to the microbiome and the microbiome is directing to the cells, you know signaling hey this is what's going on in the outside world this is what i'm exposed to this is how i need to respond so there's a it's kind of infinite almost in its complexity and i just don't think we've fathomed and i you know wonder where it's going really i mean i find i find it highly exciting but also i think that the the kind of the depth and the complexity you know you talk about some of the kind of the early stuff is kind of where are we going with metabolomics and things like that i mean i think is definitely a kind of a future frontier but again you know just from taking it out of research i think always the challenge is how do you apply it in clinical practice you know and that's that for us is a you know as a lab is you know working with clinicians is you know like research often doesn't get translated or takes an awfully long time to get translated and often people are looking for singular cause and effect rather than complex patterns and if you're looking for complex patterns, how does that how does that get digested? You know, I don't know if it's the, I'm pretty sure it's the same in, in in the USA right now. But you know, we have we have a political system which is pretty pretty swung on just kind of the left and the right, and everything kind of gets like brought down to kind of three word slogans, and no one seems to kind of be celebrating kind of inherent complexity. You know, and 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 you know, and the, kind of the multitudes of different ways to kind of think about things. People kind of either want it to be like one way or the other. And that's a real challenge, you know, because I think that's, that's um, you know, clinicians want fast answers. Uh, you know, people get information overwhelmed. So how do you digest this really complex information and, um, you, you know, kind of like, you know, work, work to kind of apply it in clinical practice? I mean, chasing individual uh, compounds and pathways and all that. I, what about the theory? You know, is anyone working or is there any funding for the underlying theory of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's, you, know, it's, you know, when you look at, we're not really, I mean, if you look at the microbiome space, you look where the funding is uh, right now. Yeah, you know, the majority of the funding is in, is in, yeah, it's, in it's in therapeutics. Basically, yeah, it's still, it's still kind of in the hope that the kind of the, you know, the, the microbiome is, a, is, a, is one of the next frontiers in, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry. But again, like targeting us kind of almost like a, you know, singular, singular cause and effect, either kind of modulating the microbiome or modulating an immune response for a specific disease, for example. So again, still trying to like, you know, you know, develop a, develop a microbe basically uh, or a phage or something like that that's going to be able to treat a specific condition. So it's still kind of going down that, you know, it's not really thinking about ecosystems or systems biology approach. It's not, 
you know, you look at, you know, you know, allopathic medicine, you know, you, you know, most people say you can see the cardiologist, you can see the neurologist, you can see the gastroenterologist. And it's the same, this is that same symptom. It's the same thing that's happened like with the, with the microbiome. I mean, there's been so much focus on the gastrointestinal microbiome, but not so much on, you know, the oral microbiome or the vaginal microbiome. I mean, again, like, a, you know, I know someone um, who runs a research group at the uh, Bristol University in uh, the oral microbiome and dentistry department and looking at, you know, signaling between the oral cavity and the vaginal microbiome of um, Candida arabican species. So again, like signaling microbes signaling to each other in different spaces, vaginal, you know, different microbiomes in the body. But we're kind of still focused on this kind of, you know, what happens in the mouth stays in the house, what happens in the you know gut stays in the gut, you know what I mean? When we're moving out of that, of course we are. Um, but we're still kind of looking for that, you know, singular cause and effect. And I, um, I, I guess it's, yeah, we're, st- we're still kind of like chasing that because the complexity perhaps is just completely overwhelming. And I think, you know, we, you, you do need to kind of not overwhelm people. And I guess that's what, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, maybe steer a middle path in terms of how we, how we work with our clinicians, how we kind of educate them, how we kind of pull data. Uh, we neither kind of want to simplify it down to kind of, wellness or ill health and not nor scare people you know with, with with complexity so what are the particular interventions you're looking to help create or shed light on let's say with the vaginal microbiome and then the intestinal and then the oral and what yeah, are you focused so in on as a company so you know as a you know as a um i think it's you know kind of really you know like a kind of like a you know challenge as i said you know sometimes to kind of think about you know different different ways and different resources you know so again fundamentally you know, we're kind of as an, as a, as a company moving, you know, or trying to basically work towards, you know, really helping people to kind of think, you know, move away from that kind of uh, pill for an ill thing, you know, and again, like, you know, a huge amount of it, let's take, let's start talking about the bio the vagina microbiome. You know, there were huge amounts of just general ecological considerations, for example. So, you know, frequent use of kind of vaginal perfume sprays and douches need to be avoided. They can prevent irritation. They can alter the pH. Smoking alters the pH of the vaginal microbiome, uh, which is then going to allow, you know, kind of like decrease in lactobacilli. It's going to allow, like, you know, increase the prevalence of, you know, potential kind of pathobionts. So you can definitely, absolutely, you know, like the biggest, um, you know, like anything, you know, we will say, you know, coin an American phrase. I used to, you know, live and work in the US. You know, the biggest, you know, bang for your buck is going to be the kind of the things that you do every single day. You know, the kind of lifestyle factors for sure. You know, you need to be looking at hormone balance, for example. You're going to like, you know, like, uh, you know, make sure you're not getting like lots of kind of like, you know, fecal vaginal contamination, for example. That's going to be really important. Stress has a huge role to play on microbial balance and immune function. So you kind of start with those things. And then you start kind of like, you know, and you look at, you know, look at the labs and look at, you know, uh, look at the presentation. And then you start looking at you know, like products, for example, and that might be used uh, intravaginally. And then you've obviously got the oral route and then you've got clinicians, uh, you know, working with kind of like, you know, uh, probiotic pessaries or intravaginal applications of probiotics of specific species, for example, that are, you know, like whether it's Crispatus or Gesserii, you know, that those types of interventions or specific, you know, there's a lot of work going on in specific strains of probiotics to kind of help maybe not treat urinary tract infections, but kind of prevent uh, post-antibiotic use, kind of recurrent urinary tract infections by kind of inhibiting biofilms and, and E. coli growth. So I think there's definitely a role to 
a, a role to play, for example, in and absolutely we're in, we're invested in that, um, helping clinicians kind of like you know you know guide themselves towards kind of like you know therapeutic applications. But we're very much got this kind of like wider ecosystem in mind that you're not you know this idea that you know okay right you know I've got IBS okay well if I just take a probiotic I'm gonna you know somehow make myself better. I mean, that's just flagrantly, just completely untrue. You know, yeah, maybe in a percentage, but what else are you doing if that makes sense? Uh, you chewing your food properly? Are you sleeping properly? Uh, are you making sure you, you know, you've got like nice fasting in between meals? You know, you've got, you, you've got to cover these kind of like big ground and bases and, and, and that's where it comes in. And like I talk also about when you're doing the testing, you know, doing the diagnostics, it's like, let's look at some of like key kind of key host markers, you know, pH, interleukin-1 beta, key lactobacilli species. And let's put that in context with like the lifestyle and the environment, you know, and, and then you kind of start to build up a picture. Um, so I think that's, you know, and of course, you know, there's the role, for example, you know, for things like BV, you've got common pharmaceuticals, metronidazole, um, things like that, or intravaginal applications again. But then, you know, do you, do you just do that and then just, go back to square one, for example, or you do look at the underlying causes, for example, why is someone having repeat bacterial virginosis? You know, what, you know, what else is kind of going on? It didn't just suddenly appear from, from nowhere. And, and I think that's kind of where, where we come in is we're really trying to kind of empower uh, or help clinicians empower their patients to kind of understand that their body is this complex ecosystem that needs to be nourished. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, the wonderful, Professor Martin Blazer, I think from uh, NYU, who says we need to treat our bodies more like gardens and less like battlefields. And I kind of think that sums it up, really. I think, you know, we, we often, you know, see the body as something that just needs to be treated almost like a machine, that something needs to be treated rather than something that needs to be nurtured. I think that's, you know, absolutely the essence of, of kind of where we are, both in Vivo Healthcare and our, and our lab, Philo Bioscience, and all the work that we do uh, within the microbiome at the laboratory. So what do you think there's going to be... Uh clarity on or maybe a short-term breakthrough in the next year or so with your work in particular or is it going to be much longer term i think it's going to be much longer term for us we're in development of uh we can we, we've started we, we want to do some work in um well, we're already doing some kind of like you know some work on the urinary microbiome um so that you know we can start to come and see you know pitch and kind of research projects between the vagina and urinary particularly with the current urinary tract infections i think you know there's there's um it's really important to kind of understand which specific microbes are involved. And sometimes there's some kind of like more unusual ones involved. And then when it comes to the vaginal microbiome and fertility, infertility, recurrent miscarriage, this area, IVF treatment outcomes, this is a huge area of interest for us. And we're seeing some, some really great data, some really great interventions and some kind of success stories from clinicians specifically working in the kind of female fertility space. I think this really excites us as a company. Um, you know, again, it's a kind of a, an area that hasn't really been export, explored massively. And then also kind of coupling into that as well. Uh, and this has been like led by some of our uh, scientific advisory board team to, and this won't be commercially, but certainly from a research perspective, kind of starting to look at some dynamics of the, uh, the semen microbiome and the role that that has to play potentially. Uh, there's a dance between, you know, obviously the semen has a huge, you know, interaction uh, with the vaginal microbiome. Um, so obviously we're starting to, you know, look at, uh, look at those patterns of basically what happens between my partners, you know, potentially in kind of cases of infertility or recurrent miscarriage, for example, 
um, you know, that, you know, there's obviously an interaction there that happens all the time. So we're definitely kind of looking at, you know, the, again, you know, the oral microbiome and the gut microbiome, these kind of like, you know, dynamic interactions between different microbiomes is really where, uh, and then kind of pulling that data together into test kits to give to clinicians, uh, and to make that, that information actionable, certainly on kind of a multitude of different levels, whether it's understanding, you know, um, you know, potential drivers, uh, in, uh, you know, disease, particularly like chronic disease, or whether it's kind of like, you know, optimizing health basically to, you know, as you said, like, you know, pre-pregnancy to look at optimize, optimizing the vaginal microbiome to reduce the risk of, you know, preterm birth, for example, you know, and I think that's something that, you know, we're, we're certainly looking at data and trying to work with clinicians to kind of, uh, you know, clarify from our data and, and from our tests, uh, and get, and get that into uh, clinical practice more readily. Okay. Well, well, very good. So Humphrey, what's the best Great. way for people to find out, um, more about in vivo? So the best way is to uh, go to our website. Uh, so it's uh, www.invivo.healthcare.com. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, that's kind of the commercial arm where we deal with clinicians uh, and patients uh, in terms of selling all selling all our kind of services. And then if anyone's interested specifically in the microbiome laboratory that we have based out of Bristol, uh, it's Philo. So P H Y L O PhiloBioscience.com. And there you can read more about the work we do, um, you know, our scientific advisory board uh, and some of the research projects that we have going on. Well, very good. Well, Humphrey, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Really enjoyed it. Have a lovely day. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else. Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.